All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I am joined in the studio. I love these in-studio conversations. It's so nice. I don't have to deal with, you know, Zoom, Google Meet, et cetera, splicing audio later on. I can just have a conversation face-to-face, and that's where I am right now in my studio with guest Zach Mettler. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks, Zach. So Zach's a friend of mine. Uh, he goes to my parish, Holy Apostles, and he's been Catholic for about six months now, right? We, I think we've recently passed the six-month mark. June 6, 2020. There you go. So December 6th was a six-month mark. Yep. Um, and he's got a really interesting story about how he became Catholic. We've been able to bond over a lot of the things that we sort of discovered along the way in our journey to the church. So I wanted to have Zach on to talk about his conversion. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the Church Fathers as well, because instrumental to Zach's conversion, I'll let him talk about this, obviously, in detail, was uh, was study of the Church Fathers and what the Church Fathers said about these very uh, key theological ideas that are central to being Catholic. So we'll talk about all that. But in the meantime, Zach, how are you doing? Doing well. Yeah. I mean, I feel like COVID ruined 2020 for everybody. But, I know. It's uh, really... It's, it's such because a of COVID is like the key word for 2020. If, yeah, it is. It totally is. And I think it's really, I mean, it's it's definitely true that COVID has been a damper on 2020. It's also just sad that it's a lost year for so many people. Right. Know? And I think even those who have tried to not let it be a lost year, you, you miss out on opportunities, on travel, on seeing family and friends, et cetera. And it's just- um, Hopefully think, with vaccine and everything, it'll end sometime so soon. Yeah. You know, people are talking about how you get the vaccine and you can still give it to people, so you still got to wear masks. I don't think that's going to happen. No, well, definitely not. Uh, I mean, I think this is a separate conversation, et cetera, but the public health establishment has just lost so much credibility over the I way. Everybody trusted the CDC before this. And yeah. now, like, why, what do they do? Actually? And now no one does. And right. no one trusts their, no one trusts their state departments of public health. No one trusts their governors and, and their, you know, like, we pay all these tax dollars for why again? Yeah. Like, I don't remember. Yeah, exactly. So. It's crazy. It's, it's really been, I mean, it's been an amazing year in like a, how, people's lives have been directly impacted by this thing, uh, primarily through those who have died or knowing people who have died, et cetera. But B, just like, it has upended everything I thought I took for granted about like how knowledge is transferred. Uh, you know, I, I know people who have like diametrically opposed views of what COVID is and how it functions and who it poses a threat to, all because they, they self-select news sources and and the, the it's been very revealing in that way, right? Yeah, and then also the whole like public health authority establishment uh, question. I mean, it's sort of revealed uh, the ineptitude of that entire part of our body politics. So it's really been it's an eye-opening year. Yeah, and not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I, I think it's real. Um, it's really revealed how how scared people are of death. Honestly, yes, you know, because. You know, you, every, you sacrifice everything, you know, your livelihood, the way you live your life just to, you know, hopefully survive. Yeah. Um, and I think that's been really revealing for our culture. Yeah, it totally has. I mean, and Sally and I have talked about that before as well, right? Like there, there's, there's always going to be a risk, a risk trade-off, whatever you do, right? Driving anywhere, doing anything, you're always going to be at risk, right? When I drive to the grocery store five minutes from my house, I am at risk of dying in a car accident. And so the, the, you know, I mentioned that not to say like we should just go about our lives totally normally amidst COVID, but to say that there's always a question of risks in every action we do. And we have to have a healthy acknowledgement of those risks that dictates how we then live our lives. Right. So, you know, COVID at some point will become, I hope will become a low enough risk that people will be comfortable with like taking masks off again and going out places, but that risk will likely not go to zero in the next like three to five years. I don't think we're going to make, it's not going to be a polio situation where COVID-19 is just extinct in the Western hemisphere. It's going to be like your chances of getting this are drastically reduced because we have herd immunity achieved through a vaccination program and uh, you've been vaccinated. So you have a very, very low likelihood of contracting this, but it's not zero, right? So it's still going to be there. We just, we can't have the same mentality of we have to have zero risk before anything we turns anything. back on. Right, definitely. Yeah, so it's been revealing that in that way too, just like sort of the mass psychology aspects of what's gone on too. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we digress. Let's come back to the topic at hand here, Zach. Um, to my listeners, Zach is a graduate of William Jessup University in Rockland, California. And Zach, you and I were talking right before we turned this on. I was asking you where Rockland is and I was verifying that it's outside of Sacramento. And I realized why I knew that. It's because my, my freshman college roommate was from Rockland, California. There you go. Small world. I was like, I know that sounds familiar, and I think it's near Sacramento. So <laughs> I was like, how did you know that? Yeah. I didn't ask. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> that's exactly how. I just realized. So uh, from, from Rock, or oh, not from, but 
in Rockland, California, went right. to college there. Uh, went to high school in Reno, Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after college, where you got a bachelor's in Christian leadership at William Jessup, you went to DC, worked for the Heritage, Heritage Foundation a little bit, which is a conservative think tank. Uh, and now you work at Folks in the Family as a staff writer. That's correct. Um, not a Catholic organization, but a very Christian organization. And there are Catholics that work at Folks in the Family. I've got to uh, know quite a few of them as I've um, become Catholic. You're now in the uh, Catholic network at Focus. Right, exactly. All, all three of us or so. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good. Well, I'm glad you've at least found some kindred spirits there. Um, I mean, Paul McCusker, who you, I think, know, uh, or at least know of, uh, has been on this podcast a couple different times to talk about his experience becoming Catholic and talk about the legacy of John Henry Newman, who I think we're going to maybe mention a little bit tonight. Uh, And he, of course, used to work at Focus as well, was the architect of their Adventures in Odyssey series and shaped my childhood in several respects because of that. So, um, yeah, I guess it's a good place to become Catholic. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, welcome, Zach. Um, Tell me this. When did your journey to the church start? So it was in December of 2018, uh, probably just a few days before I graduated. Um, the thought entered my mind, um, what happens if I become Catholic? And I had never thought that before. And there's a journey up to that, and we'll talk about that uh, in the future. But yeah, it was December 2018. Uh, is when I first thought, um, I was 21 at the time, uh, what, 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 what happens if I become Catholic? And so what precipitated that? Was it, uh, you know, because I was talking to a seminarian the other day who had a, an almost audible call to the priesthood, mm. which is wonderful and helpful, right? So was that your experience that you had this like almost audible perception, like God's might be calling me to the Catholic church? What, what about that? Or was it precipitated by a conversation with a friend or several conversations, et cetera? It, it was precipitated um, by almost a decade of being interested in my faith and, and studying scripture. Um, and to be honest, I tell people this and they kind of look at me a little weird and it's scripture that brought me to the Catholic church. Um, and so I, you know, was baptized in a Presbyterian church as I, um, was, uh, you know, in December, uh, June, June, 1997. And, uh, so grew up in a Christian household, Christian parents and, um, you know, baptism didn't really mean anything to me. So that infant baptism, I really didn't, didn't care about because there was no theology that I had of baptismal regeneration. And so uh, going through high school, um, switched from a private Christian school uh, that I went to through sixth grade and then went to a, a public middle school, public high school, and uh, it was rebaptized actually. Um, and that's, you know, for, for evangelicals, you know, that's pretty, pretty common. If yeah. you, you know, drift away from the church, you can be rebaptized right. and as many times as you want, right? Because there's no, it's just a symbol. And so, um, but it's actually a heresy to be rebaptized. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that at the time. So, um, mentioned that in my first confession. Don't know. Yeah. Don't know if I needed to. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> right. Um, and so, yeah, I went to college and, and majored in uh, Christian leadership. Got a bachelor's of arts in Christian leadership. And uh, I met this guy named Josh Charles, who was um, at that time just investigating the Catholic Church. And I uh, got to know him because of his his conservative blog. Um, big conservative guy, uh, and. You know, I, I wasn't really inter- interested in his conversion at that time, and so I, you know, got to got to know him, heard him, heard him out, and he suggested this book um, called "The Fathers Know Best" by Jimmy Aiken, and so I got that in December of 2018, uh, right before I graduated, and uh, that book and and learning about the Church Fathers, which I had never heard of before, even though I got a degree in Christian leadership and it had 18 credits in in theology, um, you know, I, that was the first time I'd heard about them. So when you say the first time you'd heard about them, as you didn't, you had not heard this phrase, the church fathers. I didn't before. know who the church fathers were, even though I got a, a bachelor of arts in Christian leadership and had 18, 18 uh, and that's kind of a. I don't want to condemn my my college, yeah. Um, but for you know evangelicals, you know this is not a, a, a very explored area. It's, you know, it's sola scriptura has taken um, honestly such a, a deep root, yeah. That that these church fathers. You, don't matter a whole lot, honestly. Well, and it's it's clearly taken on a life of its own too, because if you read, I mean, you know, to be totally charitable to the original reformers, including Luther, what the evangelical sort of movement today thinks of as sola scriptura is not what Martin Luther meant by sola scriptura, right? And so it's just taken on this total life of its own. Where, like, how do you how do you get eighteen credits of theology? You just study the Bible, <laughs> you take exactly. courses in the Bible, and, right? And that's how you. And get maybe it. I just didn't read enough during my college time, like it. it could, it's certainly partially my fault, um, but you know, I, me- I remember sitting in a class that I took um, on Romans, and we'd all go through the class, and we'd all look at one chapter of Scripture, and we'd all have different interpretations of what that meant, 
and there was no deciding authority on what a certain you know thing on scripture meant we we could all have our own varying opinions on on everything under the sun and protestants will respond and say there's certain essentials that we all agree on yeah uh but then you ask them what are those essentials and they can all disagree on what the essentials are yeah so i don't know how that works either yeah i've talked about that before as well uh, th- this is a common refrain in anglican circles that you need to have unity in essentials and diversity in non-essentials right but you know of course one of the essentials needs to be what are the essentials and you don't find agreement on that. So yeah. it's really an untenable an untenable model. It doesn't right. work. So had you at least heard of, you know, St. Augustine, maybe like on the more obscure end, yeah. St. John Chrysostom, had you heard of these guys? I had. I had heard of, you know, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas. I took a couple of political um, philosophy classes and, and had heard their names in there. And so I, I, you know, kind of revered these guys without knowing a whole lot of what they That's so remarkable taught. that you you learned about these guys. Right. And so I already had on this, you know, in my mind, I, I revered them and what they thought. And then so learning how they, how Catholic they were, um, you know, I'm like, man, I have nothing on these guys. Like, yeah. why, why am I not in the Catholic church? That's cool. Okay. So you got the father's father's, the father's no best book by Jimmy Aiken. Right. And then what happened? You graduated from William Jessup. Yep, yep. And so the, for the next year and a half, um, I really just spent a lot of time reading the Church Fathers, um, you know, from St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was writing in, you know, the early, early, early second century, was likely a disciple of the Apostle John. Um, and, you know, all through the first 300, 400 um, years of the Church, that's where I focused. And and the reason for that is because, you know, a lot of Protestants will say that, Somewhere along the line, you know, Romans got involved and, and the church kind of, you know, went in the wrong direction. Um, but I, I didn't think that had happened, you know, at the first, you know, at 100 AD or 200 right. AD. So learning what the church fathers said on that or said during that, that time period was, yeah. was really important. Yeah. Sounds good. So um, what was the what was the decision like? I mean, I know you'd come from a non-Catholic family like me, right? right? So there's some probably some kind of difficulty in breaking the news to them, et cetera. But what was the process like that brought you from reading about the church fathers and reading the church fathers in their own words to entering an RCIA program and saying, I, this is something that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was about a, not quite a year after I'm learning about the church fathers and really di- diving into their, to their writings that I was like, all right, well, you know, I'm not sure I want to become Catholic yet, but I want to, you know, at least learn more about it. And the way I can do that is, is by joining RCIA. So I did join R- RCIA. So you joined really saying, I'm not sure if I want to commit Correct, this is yeah. a exploratory type yep. thing. Yeah. Yep. And I know a lot of, a lot of people who join RCA, that's that's kind of where they're at. Yeah. You know, not sure, not not sure if that's for them or not. Um, and so that's you know, I, I went through that process and, and prayed, prayed, and went went to uh, adoration for a lot, a lot of time, and um, became Catholic. So, at what point in the RCA process did you decide? Okay, I'm I'm all at in. confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, I, I, there wasn't a, a specific moment in RCA where I was like, okay, now I know I'm becoming Catholic. Yeah. But it was really just going through the process. Um, and and I was speaking to a professor friend of mine who you know was listening, and I was asking him just a bunch of questions that I had on Mary and all these different things. And you know, he said, "You're already Catholic, and you just don't know it. And you're not confirmed yet." Yeah. And that kind of hit me in a you know, a soft spot. I was like, really? Like I'm already Catholic. And of course I'm, you know, you're not Catholic. You're not yeah. a fully initiated member of the Catholic church. Um, but my theology had already changed so much uh, that he was, he was right. Yeah. And there's, there's, you know, this, this idea of, um, you know, for those who desire to be baptized, a catechumen, for example, who's not yet baptized, but then dies, uh, the church considers them in many, many instances, at least, uh, having been baptized by intention. Right. So maybe there is this sort of confirmation by intention as well that, that rings true a little bit. Not to say that you could walk into a, a mass and receive the Eucharist, but to say that, you know, you have the you had the full intention at that point, even if you didn't um you didn't even realize it yourself entirely, mm-hmm. right? To become Catholic. That, right. You know, you, you'd already embrace everything that the Catholic Church teaches and, and right. taught. Um that's great. Well, congrats. Uh I love having you in the church. I love having you having you at our parish as well. Um and it's been great to get to know you. Let's talk a little bit about some of the doctrinal obstacles that were there, because I think every convert has their own. And there are some big ones that recur and are common to most converts, I think. But I think also everyone has their own, right? So like purgatory was a was a big one for me, big obstacle to becoming Catholic. Um, the Marian uh, doctrines and dogmas also are problematic to a lot of people. But for me, those are probably the two big ones. Um, and you might have had some different ones. So what were some of the ones that you had and and how can the church fathers help us understand these Mm -hmm. yeah the first two um main ones was you know this faith versus works dichotomy 
Uh, and I really honestly solved that one by reading scripture in Aquinas. Um, and I say by reading scripture and um, because, you know, you read James 2, and he's talking about how, you know, even the demons believe, you know, and, and shudder. Right. And uh, in Matthew 25, and I just couldn't figure out how with my sola fide theology, how if only faith alone matters, why throughout scripture it seems like what I do actually matters, not just, you know, to prove whether or not I'm saved, but it matters to whether or not I actually you know, will be judged just on on the day of judgment, um, and I saw that all throughout Scripture, um, and the same thing with you know sola scriptura throughout the New Testament. And somehow I never um, figured this out by you know reading it back in high school. It, it kind of hit me um, towards the end of college, um, but you know throughout Scripture they're referring to this tradition of the apostles and um, you know following the the traditions that are handed down both by word uh, and by letter. And so there's this this oral tradition that the apostles had that you see once again in the writings of the early church fathers with you know Saint Ignatius and Saint Irenaeus um, within you know 100 150 AD uh, that were really important to me. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, I, I share your uh, share your you know sort of observation about recognizing how tradition passed on uh, among the Jewish people prior to Christ's inauguration of the church. Uh, I would also observe that. It helps to, you know, when you're thinking about ecclesiology, and ultimately the tradition question is a question of ecclesiology because it's about what is the church, right? And when you're asking how does the church transmit truth, you have to underpin that question or the answer to that question with a more foundational question of what is the church. And for me, it's really helpful to see continuity, and this is sort of the covenant theology that Scott Hahn talks about a lot, but see the continuity between the Old and New Testament and not just continuity in that they agree with each other, right? But that the New Testament is fulfilled in the old. Um, just like Jesus said, it not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right. And that's what he does. And so the church is quite clearly, when you read the New and Old Testament in context of each other, is quite clearly the, the new Israel. And so, you know, that, that then makes sense why there are 12 apostles, when there are 12 tribes of Israel, right? And why there is the Eucharist that is a sacrificial meal uh, that mimics or really fulfills and sort of fully illuminates the Passover meal, the Passover sacrifice. So, you know, seeing the con the continuity between those two things and how the new fulfills the old really, I think, helps drive home what, what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that illuminates a bunch of different questions you know, with Mary, who, you know, is the fulfillment of, of Eve. Um, what, you know, I think it was St. Irenaeus who talks about what, what Eve... Um, you know, bound through sin, Eve, uh, I'm sorry, Mary loosed through her, her obedience, right? Right, exactly, yeah. And so you yeah, see Eve's, this Eve's the one who scripture. takes what belongs to God, and Mary's the one who says yes to God, exactly. totally humbling herself, yeah. Right, right. And so I, you know, I just want to bring in this this quote from um, John Henry Card Cardinal Newman, who was an Anglican convert to Catholicism like yourself, uh, who said this in his uh, essay for the development of Christian doctrine, he said, to, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. And this utter incongruity between Protestantism and historical Christianity is a plain fact. Whether the latter be regarded in its earlier or in its later centuries, Protestants can as little bear its anti-Nicene as its post-Tridentine period. I have elsewhere observed on this circumstance, so much must the Protestant grant that if a, such a system of doctrine as he would now introduce ever existed in early times, has been clean swept away as if by a deluge, suddenly, silently, and without memorial. Yeah, that's a great quote. Uh, and we were talking about this, I don't know, a week or two ago, Zach. And I was saying that I love that quote. I tend to not use that quote, especially in like evangelistic Since context. it's not my podcast, I can... I can no, no, you, like it's, it's good. I mean, <laughs> what I was going to say is like, I try to use that quote with a non-Catholic audience because... Mm -hmm. It can come can come across as pretty condescending. This whole like to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. Right. The implication, obviously, is no Protestant has ever been deep in history. Yeah, and that's that was something that I would definitely disagree with him on. Yeah, uh, or di I would disagree with that um, assumption at least because there. I mean, there are. I think especially within evangelicalism, there's this kind of resurgence of interest in early church theology. There's professors who you know have studied early church. Um, writings and and have remained evangelical and not become catholic and you know there's several pastors that i've met with uh before i became catholic trying to figure out you know whether or not i should do this and they were very steeped in in early church traditions and so i think this is kind of a, a re 
um, awakening within evangelicalism that you, yeah. we have to be, or at least evangelicals need to be connected with, with this um, early church. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. I mean, I know a lot of Protestants who are very learned in history and study the fathers, et cetera. And, you know, if you if you want to engage them in an argument on the real presence, they will have, have reasons in some respects or in many respects in, in um, sometimes uh, many instances, quotes from the church fathers that seem to corroborate their position, et cetera. Right. But I think that approach, that sort of like, you know, he said, she said, of the church fathers, like here's a quote from church father. Here's another, um, that misses the forest for the trees because the issue is not, is the early church absolutely unanimous on this question? Because I mean, the, the church has been unanimous on almost no question ever, which is exactly why since the early days of the church, we've had to call these councils to resolve very significant theological questions, right? It's because there isn't unanimity. And the other thing is people act as if Protestantism was born when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door. That's not the case at all. I mean, Protestantism has been around since people disagree with each other in the church. And Protestantism, the spirit of Protestantism is the, is the spirit of um, rejecting uh, the true church of Jesus Christ. And people have been doing that since long before there was a capital P Protestant Reformation, right? So, you know, to say that, like, my position now is validated by uh, this person when he said this, or this person when he said this, or this person when he said this— is applying the wrong heuristic to uh, to history. I mean, what we need to do is look at like what the what the church not necessarily unanimously said, but what the church has defined and how it has reached those conclusions, building on the work of the church fathers, going all the way back to the apostles. Uh, and obviously, when we talk about the apostles, we're really talking about uh, the words of Scripture, because the um, in the case of the New Testament, it's the apostles and their immediate circle who compose all the words of scripture by the inspiration of the Holy spirit. Um, but so, so I like the, I really like the John Henry Newman quote. I agree with it in its entirety. I just think it can sometimes be unhelpful because of what it implies for people that I'm talking to. Right. Um, and, and, it, and then it can sort of sound dismissive and that's really not a very helpful evangelistic tool. Fair enough. <laughs> but so anyway, so let's talk about some of these, uh, some of these issues for you that as you were reading some of the church fathers, right again, so not, not saying like, just because St. Irenaeus says this, um, it's or I should, I should say St. Saint Ignatius, Irenaeus, uh, yeah. not a saint, but um, I think I have that right, right? I think they're both saints. No, you're right, you're right. Tertullian's not a saint, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, you know, not it's not just like, this is true because Ignatius said this, right? right? But as an evangelical who did not have a foundational knowledge of the fathers, you're reading these guys for the first time and realizing, oh, wow, like there's something here. Yeah, I witnessed to the early Catholicity of the church because I realized that, you know, um, all these guys that I hadn't known about, hadn't been reading, were Catholic. And if Augustine was, you know, Saint Augustine was Catholic. If his, if Saint Ambrose was Catholic, and they had all these very Catholic beliefs, why am I not Catholic? Yeah. Um, and that happened over and over again with every every single issue that I, I looked at. And you know, I mentioned earlier that um, Scripture honestly brought me to the Church, and it's Scripture, you know, read through the lens of the Church Fathers. And what I mean by that is. Um, you know, you, you see the basis for all these Catholic beliefs in Scripture that I hadn't seen as an evangelical. I hadn't seen as a Protestant. So you read John six now, and you, you know Catholics are like, "Well, of course, like obviously this implies transubstantiation." But I had read John six before as a Protestant and never, never even considered that. Yeah. And so you know, seeing the early Church Fathers' interpretation of of these Scriptures that I had long known um, showed me the truth of, of Catholicism. Yeah, and I think that's um, that's important too, right? Because um, I had a discussion almost a year ago now with a Protestant on John chapter six. And, you know, his contention was like, this is all figurative language and it was clearly not meant to be taken literally. And you're actually jumping to conclusions by thinking that it is, et cetera. And that is not a, let me, I'm trying to think about how to characterize. That is not an unreasonable assertion, right? In that it does not contradict plain reason, right? There are ways that you can interpret passages of scripture literally or metaphorically. That is, it, it is what it is, right? Right. But to help us understand what's going on here, because scripture is a complicated, um, complicated compilation of words, uh, we should appeal to the traditions of the church and the words of the fathers who have interpreted them, and in some cases um, wrote them. Right. I mean, we we look at Paul's letters to understand Paul's letters. Right. We we like what what is he saying here in Romans? Well, let's look what he says here in Ephesians. Right. These things are not contradicting each other. Um, so how can those things illuminate, right? So in the same way, 
not exactly the same, uh, but in a similar way, right? When we're trying to understand the words of scripture, maybe we should look at Ignatius who served with these guys <laughs> right? Uh, and, and, you know, literally and who, who knew with these them. guys who wrote this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, okay, well, let's, let's talk about, um, you know, one of these, let's start with baptism. Um, Cause I know you've got a few of these that you want to talk through uh, on the, uh, on some of these uh, church father talking points. So how about baptism? You mentioned that you were baptized as an infant. Uh, that meant nothing to you because right. no theology of baptismal regeneration. Um, and then you were rebaptized later. Yeah, in, in so high school, I was rebaptized you were, you were an accidental, uh, I think it was the donatist heresy, right? That sounds you were, right. You were an accidental donatist. <laughs> Little did I know. Um, but yeah, like I said, uh, you know, I, I, see, I see the basis for all these Catholic beliefs in Scripture. Um, John 3, 1 through 5 is, is one of them. And, and obviously Protestants discount this as, as talking about baptism. Um, but I'll just read, you know, the first four, five verses of John here. He says, now, now, now there's a man of the Pharisees named, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these uh, signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so I had read John 3, you know, before I was considering Catholicism. Um, but little did I know that um, for the first, honestly, the first 1,500 years of Christianity, nobody interpreted that verse as not talking about baptism Reformulated, reformulated positively. Every every church father saw that verse as talking about baptism. Yeah. Um, so what what did you see it as before you were Catholic? I, I didn't know, okay. honestly. Yeah, um, and so learning that the church fathers all believed that this verse was talking about baptism, uh, it, it kind of indicated to me that maybe I should you know actually see this verse as as talking about baptism as well. Um, just to witness to a, a few church fathers here, one is St. Uh, Justin Martyr, who, who wrote in 151 AD uh, in his first apology, he said, As many as are persuaded and believe that what we teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly and are instructed to pray and entreat God with fasting for the remission of their past sins, we pray and fast with them. Then they are brought by us where there is water and are re- regenerated in the same way as we were ourselves regenerated. For in the name of God, the Father, and the Lord of the universe, and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, they received the washing of water. For Christ also said, unless you be born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so you see him using this verse from Scripture um, to talk about, uh, you know, catechumens who were wanting to become Catholic, uh, and that this baptism actually meant something and it was, it was a cleansing of, of their previous life and, and the washing of sins, washing away of sins. Yeah. And you also have this quote from St. Augustine. Can you read just the second paragraph of Augustine there? Cause I think that's, um, that's a pretty powerful one as well. Yeah. yeah. This was a big one for me that I, that I read before coming into the church. I was like, wow, he's testifying here at the baptism and, and dependence as, yeah. as you'll see. He says uh, in this sermon to catechumens on the creed, uh, this is early, early fifth century, fifth century. Uh, so four hundreds, he said, in three ways, then, are sins remitted in the church, by baptism, by prayer, and by the greater humili- humility of penance. Yet God does not remit sins but to the baptized. The very sins which he remits first, he remits not but to the baptized. When? When they are baptized. The sins which are remitted upon, uh, upon prayer, upon penance, to whom he remits, it is to the baptized that he remits. Yeah, and I just thought, when? When they are baptized. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, p- clearly not a, a purely symbolic view. I mean... Um, I think the um, the other, pri- I mean, I guess there's a, there's a few things, right? Like I have friends who are evangelicals and they will not do infant baptisms because they believe uh, in believer's baptism by which you have to make a confession of faith and then be baptized. So what they'll do is instead of baptizing their infant to consecrate their infant to God, they will do sort of like a- Infant dedication. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Infant dedication or baby blessing or something. Um, and, uh, and so that's, I guess, probably the, other predominant view in America. Uh, but our, our Catholic view is that the, is the sacrament itself that is efficacious. Now the person has to be properly disposed to receive the sacrament. Right. It's not opposed to faith in any way. And so, yeah. So like, you know, for an adult, for example, who can consent, uh, you have to have consent to baptize that adult. Right. Uh, in the case of an infant, you have to have the consent of the infant's parents. Um, 
And uh, but but at the same time, the the work is um, it's called ex opera operato, which basically means by the working of the work. And so it's not actually even dependent on the worthiness of the minister who's doing it. Uh, the minister has to actually intend to do the bapt the baptism, but the minister doesn't need to be a good person <laughs> to right. to have the baptism be effective. It's actually the Holy Spirit who works through the sacrament itself. Right. It's Christ who is baptizing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, your your um, reading of the passage in John, where where Jesus talks about being born of water and the Spirit. I mean. And going back to my earlier point about continuity between the Old and New Testaments, like we see in the Old Testament um, repeatedly, uh, you know, Naaman washes in the water, is delivered from his leprosy. Uh, Noah is delivered, um, how? Via water, right? Uh, the Israelites, when they are fleeing Egypt, they escape and are delivered from the Egyptians by crossing what? Water, the Red Sea, when it's parted for them and they walk through and then the water is shut on them on the other side. So um, all these different instances where it is clear that we are saved by water, and and I think that strengthens. It doesn't. It doesn't sort of. Um, it doesn't make an airtight case by itself for this not being a symbolic thing, but it certainly strengthens the case of those who are saying it is the sacrament itself that is effective. Right. Yeah. And just to bring in another quote here from Saint Irenaeus of Lyons, you were almost quoting him. I don't know if you knew you were doing that. I did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And he says in uh, his fragments from the lost writings of Irenaeus in 190 A.D. Uh, I'll just read a, a quick um, paragraph from him. He says, "And Naaman dipped himself." seven times in the Jordan. It was not for nothing that Naaman, when suffering from leprosy, was purified upon being baptized, but as an indication to us, for as we are lepers in sin, so we are made clean of our old transgressions by means of the sacred water and the invocation of the Lord. We are spiritually regenerated as newborn babes, even as the Lord has declared, except a man be born again through water and the Spirit, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. And so the ending part of that obviously is back to, back to John 3. Um, witnessing again to you know the unanimous consent of the fathers. Right. This verse uh, is talking about baptism. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's good. Um, there's another issue, you know, related, uh, but the whole infant baptism issue, right? So was that a tricky one for you at all? Um, it was honestly because you know I was baptized as an infant, right? And so right. understanding how you know someone who's not really, they're not going to remember it, honestly. Um, how how they can be saved uh, was confusing to me until I you know obviously I read read the fathers and they they discuss this and you know councils decide on on the question, um, yeah yeah I, mean, I think that that also um you know it's hard to understand if you embrace this sort of once saved always saved, um, which which honestly I did I, yeah, I did okay. embrace that yeah so then that's hard right like how can I say that this person without ever expressing a desire to love and follow Christ is saved forever because they were baptized as a baby because their parents consented for them, right? Whereas we would say, uh, you know, the parents' consent and desire and express a desire for this um, this baby to uh, be given the gift of faith by the church through the sacrament of baptism. And that baby is, and that actually provides the baby via the Holy Spirit, uh, instrumental grace uh, that can become, eff- uh, that is efficacious, right? And um, hopefully will... Um, then be taken on by them through further sacraments of confirmation, obviously first Eucharist, et cetera, um, and allow them to persevere, right? But that person can always choose to right. no longer persevere right? Um, because it's not a once saved, always saved, right? God does permit people to fall away. Um, and uh, that's an act of his permissive will as opposed to his active will, but he does permit it. And so, you know, when we understand it that way, it to me makes that conversation very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, how about uh, this is a big one for people becoming Protest- or people becoming Catholic from Protestantism. What about the the Pope? Right, and so um, for those who are are Protestant, you know the question of um, the question of what do I do now that I've you know read the Fathers? Where do I go? Becomes the next question because um, there's Orthodoxy, right? There's Anglicanism that I, I considered for you know probably three three or four weeks. Um, honestly, I looked at the Episcopal church and I was like, yeah, this probably, yeah, <laughs> probably good, isn't for good me. Good choice. Yeah. Good choice. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the primacy of the Bishop of Rome in the early church was what drew me to Catholicism. Uh, cause I saw this, you know, handed down, um, honestly from, from Jesus Christ himself, uh, you know, to Peter and then to, to the, to the Pope's Pope Francis currently. Um, and so you know, the, the foundation of this is in Matthew 16. Uh, once again, um, you know, the witness of scripture was important to me. Uh, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Uh, I'll read it here. He says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do, this, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, and I, I will, I've said this before on the podcast, so listeners um, may be tuning me out already. But I have this really um, very serious scholarly Protestant study Bible called the, um, what is it called? I think it's I think it's just called the ESV Study Bible. But it's published by Crossway. Lots of maps, you know, half the page on every page is, is just sheer footnotes. I mean, there's, it's an impressive scholarly work, and I still refer to it um, when I'm doing Bible study. Uh, but interestingly enough, on this passage, you'd expect a Protestant study Bible to give, you know, basically to advocate for an alternative reading. And it articulates basically three different kind of interpretations of this, but it admits that the strongest interpretation is that there is something special, something unique given to Peter here, um, specifically tied to his name, the whole, you know, Simon becomes Petros, meaning rock, etc. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting, like just coming from a Protestant perspective. And it's, it's also true that there are, uh, there are many church fathers who have taken this same interpretative approach. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, just to, to witness to the uh, primacy of the Bishop of Rome in the early church, um, I'll read a, a passage from St. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyons, who wrote in Against Heresies. Uh, this is about 180 AD. Uh, he said, um, I'll start here. It is within the power of all, therefore, in every church who may wish to see the truth, to com- contemplate clearly the tradition of the apostles manifested throughout the world, uh, and we are in a position to reckon upon those who are by the apostles instituted bishops in the churches and to demonstrate the succession of these men to our own times, those who are neither taught nor knew anything like uh, what these heretics rave about. For if the apostles had known hidden mysteries which they were in the habit of imparting to the perfect apart from uh, priv- privily from the rest, they would have delivered them especially to those whom they were also committing the churches themselves. And, and just to pause right there, um, you see that it's the apostles who are establishing an authority here in the early church, um, saying, "Okay, well, after we, you know, after we die, after we go, after we're martyred, um, which I think eleven of the apostles were martyred, um, you know, we need someone to keep up this authoritative structure that we have because we have this authority given by Christ." Yeah. So this is apostolic succession. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. You can see this right here. Um, so just to continue, he says, for, "For they were desirous that these men should be perfect and blameless in all things." whom also they were leaving behind as their successors, delivering up their own place of government to these men, which meant if they discharged their functions honestly, it would be a great boon to the church. But if they should fall away, the direst calamity. I won't comment on whether or not he was prophesying of on you know the state of the church today, yeah. but that's for another podcast here. Yeah. And so just to continue, he says, since however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the successions of all the uh, churches, we do not put to confusion all those who... In whatever manner, whether by an evil uh, self-pleasing, by vainglory, or by blindness and perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings. Uh, we do this, I say, by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient, and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, and also by pointing out the faith preached to men, which comes down from, to our time by means of the succession of bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority. I love it. It's nece- it's a matter of necessity that every church should agree with the Roman church, Boom. the church at Rome. And this is, like I said, 180 AD. It's it's so early within church history. Yeah. Um, you know, there probably wasn't any necessarily any Roman influence here. Um, this is before the Council of Nicaea, which you know I I went to a evangelical church and we they would recite the Nicene Creed every day, and you know knowing that came from a church council, I was like, well, do we accept this authority? I mean, right. I think so, um, but why don't then why don't we accept the authority of the other councils? Right. So, yeah, it's uh, it is it is remarkable. Um, okay, so I would also say uh, two things to um, maybe one recommendation to you, Zach. I don't know if you've read this yet, but Joe Heschmeyer has a new book out called Pope Peter. I've seen it. I haven't read it. And I think it's, I think it's the subtitle defending the church's most distinctive doctrine in a time of crisis or something like that. And the whole backdrop to the book, he opens it up this way, right? Is he's like, you know, look, I was one of Pope Francis's most ardent supporters, or maybe he, I don't think he says that, but like one of his kind of most vocal defenders among the sort of, um, theologically orthodox, um, you know, pundits in the church today. Um, but then 
when Pope Francis made some comments about um, birth control, use of birth control specifically to ward off Zika virus, um, he said that was he'd, he'd gone he'd gone too far, and that caused him to take a hard look at the church's doctrine of um, uh, petrin primacy, the, the primacy of Peter or the see of Peter, um, and to really dig into that. And so he's compiled, I, I think, a really remarkable book that like breaks the doctrine down in a very accessible way. Um, argues not just from Matthew uh, 16 and 18, but from a bunch of different scripture passages, exactly what's going on here and um, why it's uh, true and why it's essential and necessary. Uh, and I think it's a really good one. So Pope Peter by Joe Heschmeyer is a good one for that. Um, and then on the Orthodox uh, question, because of course the Orthodox have very serious claims, um, a, a church tradition absolutely steeped in the church fathers, et cetera. And they have claims against the um, the supremacy of the patroncy. Now, most Orthodox who you talk to will acknowledge the doctrine of Petrin primacy. They'll actually say, no, that's we acknowledge it's supposed to be that the uh, the Apostle Peter and his successors are first among equals, right? Um, but they would say, uh, and I've heard them say this, that it's that church, the Church of Rome, that has you know gone astray uh, and you know excommunicated the Orthodox churches, etc., uh, primarily in the, in the Great Schism in the 11th century, um, but before and and since then as well. So their position is yes, Petrin primacy, yes, Petrin supremacy, no, and they see uh, they see the church's doctrine as it is now today as a doctrine of Petrin supremacy, which I think is is unfair, but I also understand why it can look like that uh, sometimes. But I, I'd recommend for that question and ones like it, um, check out the work of Eric Ibarra. Uh, Ibarra is spelled Y B A R R A, um, and in fact, he did a podcast with Matt Frad on Pines with Aquinas recently uh, that was basically like, should we become Orthodox and He's a very smart guy who studied the issue in in very good depth, and he provides some very good historical overview of what's going on there. Um, and so I, I would say that's that's definitely worth a, a listen. That podcast specifically in his work, Eric Ibarra, E E R I C K Y B A R R A, Eric Ibarra. All right, let's go on to uh, maybe another topic here. How about um, this is one of my favorites for obvious reasons, but the real presence of the Eucharist. This is. A tough one for a lot of Protestants. I mean, a lot of modern people in general, right? And to be frank, a lot of modern Catholics, right? There was that Pew study that you know a, a minority of Catholics actually thirty like percent, right? yeah, actually believe it's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is something that is so central to our faith. You already mentioned John six uh, already, Zach. So I don't think we need to we need to reread that whole passage. But um, John six uses very literal, visceral language to describe eating Jesus's flesh and drinking his blood. That gets turned into a very metaphorical, let's have some, you know, uh, bread and grape juice uh, around our, uh, in, in our church today, you know, um, not in the Catholic church, but in the evangelical church, that's what it often turns into. Um, so how do you, how do you square that circle? How'd you come around on that one? Yeah, this was uh, you know, one I thought I had, um, you know, figured out and said, you know, there's no way I can believe this, you know, shortly after um, be- beginning to look into Catholicism and just as a, a kind of a funny story, um, so I, back in college, uh, did online church for a little while. You know, I just watched church in my dorm. And so, you know, that brings me to the question of, okay. You were ahead of your time for the COVID I age. I really was. I was practicing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that brings in the question of, you know, what do you do for communion if you're watching church online? And, you know, for me, because I had no um, theology of, you know, transubstantiation or even like Lutheran theology, which you get, I mean, you get close, consubstantiation, all that. Um, you know, because it didn't mean a, a whole lot, uh, I went to the fridge for, for communion. I grabbed out a, a little piece of tortilla. I poured myself a small glass of orange juice oh, and, and that was my, my communion Sunday. Wow. Um, wow. And, and, you know, it's interesting now with COVID throughout this whole year, I've seen, you know, different churches say, okay, well grab a cookie and a glass yep. of milk or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And this is, I feel like becoming more and more common, um, <sighs> especially in, yeah, especially in 2020. And so, you know, this um, to me, as I became Catholic in this year where, where so many other churches are, be, you know, going in, into this idea of, you know, cookie and, and milk for, yeah. for communion, it's made the Lord's Supper, it's made, made communion and, and transubstantiation mean, mean a lot more to me. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right about more churches going that direction. You know, I know people who have not been to church since March because of COVID, and uh, it's not even by choice. I think their church, if I'm not mistaken, has not actually had services. Uh, yeah, there are some. That- and this is a this is a um, is a city church, and primarily young audience, like you know, mostly people who are 
uh, not in the highest risk category for contracting COVID, but for them, it's been a, um, it's been, you know, an unacceptable risk, I guess. And so they've just been doing online church and, uh, you know, they send out the social media stuff ahead of time in the week before and say like, you know, here's what you're going to need. You're going to need, you know, something to drink, (laughs) some sort of bread, (laughs) And a willing heart, and we'll do our our Sunday communion service. And it, it's just it just misses so much, right? It misses so much. I think there's a good intent. Um, sure, behind absolutely. It. Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to you know discount any of that, um, but I do think there's obviously something missing when you can reduce communion to okay, do it at home with your family, just grab whatever you have out of the you know out of the pantry and do it yourself. Um, the word communion, right? You're supposed to have communion, communion with other believers. Yeah. And there is no communion if you're just grabbing something out of the out Very of the pantry. Um, and so just to witness to that with a couple a couple quotes from um, the church fathers. One one of the my favorite church fathers is Saint Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, he was kind of the first one that I dove into and read all of his writings. I was like, oh crap! Like, <laughs> where have you been all my life, yeah. Saint Ignatius? Um, and so he writes in his epistle to uh, the Smyrnians in 107 AD, he says, But consider those who are of a different opinion with respect to the grace of Christ who has come unto us, how opposed they are to the will of God. They have no regard for love, no care for the widow or the orphan or for the oppressed, of the bond or of the free, of the hungry or of the thirsty. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins which the father of his goodness raised up again. And then uh, later in that same uh, epistle, same epistle to the Smyrnians, he says, see that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the father and the presbytery as you would the apostles and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by, uh, or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Whatever the bishop shall appear, wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be, even as where Jesus Christ is, there is a Catholic church. And that second quote um, was really one that struck me because you see so many different elements of Catholicism in this um, quote in 107 AD. You see the, you know, the, the threefold structure structure of the church, the bishop, the priest, the deacon. Yep. Um, you see the, the word the Catholic church, right, which means universal. Um, and, and then you see you know, having the Eucharist as meaning what the bishop, you know, the, the authority of the church means. Um, and that's developed over time, obviously. Uh, but that was just a, a gut punch to me when I first read that quote. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, your point about Catholic being universal, it made me think about on this topic of churches saying the Nicene Creed, you know, I've been in Protestant churches where they just change the word Catholic to universal so they don't confuse people. Catholic is always a lower C <laughs> yeah. in, in that. For yeah. sure, they got into that. And I've seen also on the projection where they have like Catholic and asterisk. And then at the bottom, it's like Catholic in this sense means universal. <laughs> I've seen that too. Actually. You can't have people think they're ple- pledging fealty to the, uh, to the Catholic church. Right. Capital C. Yeah, right. God. Um, yeah, I think, uh, all this is great, Zach. And I'm so thankful that you were able to dive into the church fathers. Um, I know the, the helpful resource, most helpful re- resource for you in that, Respect was the Jimmy Aiken. Yeah, the Father's um, No Best by Jimmy yeah. Aiken. It's like $20 on Catholic Answers. You can get it on Amazon, too. Um, you can get it used, too, if you don't want to you know, support Catholic Answers or whatever. And I haven't read it, but it's just a compilation of it's, quotes, it's, right? Yeah, so for a page or two, he'll talk about what the Catholic Church teaches on a certain set or a certain doctrine, and then he'll really just go into you know all the quotes that the, the Church Fathers provide on that certain subject. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, and again, the only thing I would caution, right, is that the claim by... Us, I don't even think the claim of Jimmy, Jimmy Aiken, but the, you know, the claim of us here is not that the church fathers are unanimous on this stuff. No, definitely right? not. Um, but that the church has an unbroken tradition uh, that speaks to the truth of all of these things. And in most instances, that tradition constitutes the majority um, it, you know, of the church fathers. Um, and there, there are, it's true that you can, you can find a beautiful passage of meditation on the Eucharist by St. Augustine that doesn't necessarily scream, Oh, he's talking about the real presence and the actual body and blood. Um, that's okay, right? We don't. Every time when you talk about the Eucharist, we don't need to. Um, we don't need to have like a an extended monologue on it as the real body and blood of Christ. There are other uh, things, other things that that Jesus communicates to us in the Eucharist, etc. So it's not even a, a claim about that, right? Um, the claim is that the Church has an unbroken tradition going back to the time of the apostles um, on these topics. And with study and with aid from the Holy Spirit and guided by Holy Mother Church, we can also reach the truth on those topics. Right. Yeah. 
And, and one other thing that I just I want to add to the podcast for those who are listening is that you know Zach and I are not sitting here proclaiming judgment on on Protestants or, or I, have a, I have a great appreciation for my parents who are still Protestant, um, who you know all, all my friends, you know, many of my friends who are Protestant, I have a great appreciation for them, and you know they taught me the faith, um, they taught me about Jesus and to love Jesus, um, but this is really deep in deep in my faith in a way that I was not expecting. Right, I, I never two, three, four years ago would have thought that I would join the Catholic Church. Um, but it was really a quest for truth uh, that brought me here. And, and also, I, I just want to add that, you know, we're not um, saying that if you're a Protestant, right, you're, you're condemned to hell or something yeah, like that, right? Definitely not. Um, and I think that's where, you know, especially in relationships, that's kind of what you're like, all right, well, you're a Catholic now. Is that, what, what do you think for my salvation, right? The Catholic Church has many, many declared saints that are in heaven. We don't have a opposite list for those who are in hell, right? Right. Um, and so that, that that's just one other thing that I, I want to mention here is you know we're not proclaiming uh, judgment on on certain Protestants we're just well in, inviting you into into the Catholic Church at least I am. No, I am as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean it's one of the reasons why I do this podcast, right? And um, you know I think there are there are sometimes and Catholics do this as well, right? They sometimes are afraid to ask the questions because they they might not get the answer that they want. But um, ask questions, right? A- ask questions. I am absolutely confident that. Uh, the truth is in the Catholic Church, um, and if you ask the questions and you pursue the questions earnestly, um, you will end up in the Catholic Church, uh, even if you see that as you know, the farthest thing from your mind right now. Um, you know, it surprised me when I became Catholic. I think it surprised Zach uh, when when he became Catholic, and that's been the story of almost every convert you know I've talked to and and uh, heard the story of. So uh, it's an amazing thing though when the Holy Spirit does grab you and bring you into the church, and I certainly wish that for all my Protestant brothers and sisters. Um, as well, even though they might not desire that for themselves right now. So, yeah. Well, Zach, thanks so much for joining me. This is a pleasure. Uh, always good to hear the story of a fellow convert. Um, loved talking through some of these doctrines with you as well um, and hearing about how the Holy Spirit has guided you into the church. Really glad you're here with me and I look forward to working with you on the new evangelization and spreading the good news <laughs> of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, yeah. thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, to my listeners, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Cudo Catholic. If you want to get in touch with Zach, you can reach out to me, Zach at CredoCatholic.com, just Z-A-C at CredoCatholic.com. Zach spells his name with an H on the end, so he's, you know, it's not quite as simple as mine. <laughs> but uh, reach out to me. I will get you in touch with Zach if you want to talk with him or pick his brain on anything. So Zach, Z-A-C at CredoCatholic.com. And until next time, God bless you.